The Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're going to continue looking at the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And we're going to read from verse 15 to verse 26. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we, Lord, can't express what an amazing privilege it is to know you and to gather in your name and to worship in your name and to lay our request before you in your name and to hear from you. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. Father, we ask that this morning as we consider this powerful passage, life-changing passage, I pray, Lord, that you would cause the truth here to be clear, to be understood, that you would break through our distracted and hard hearts, that you would help us to hear what it is that you want to communicate through this conversation with this woman at the well. Lord, I pray you do a work in each person's heart, And Lord, thank you that you are still working and you work through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would do that work this morning and lift our eyes to you, Lord. Give us a fresh vision. And if there are non-Christians here, Lord, give them a new vision in life. Help them to see things they've never seen before by listening to what your son has to say. Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A Christian couple decided to have their neighbors over for dinner. After their pastor preached a sermon on reaching out to their neighbors, reaching out with the gospel to their neighbors. And so they were feeling guilty about the fact that they hadn't really done that, so they decided to invite their neighbors over for dinner. And they wanted everything to be perfect. They wanted to give a good impression. They wanted to show by their lives the difference that being a Christian makes. 
So when it came time to eat, they were all sitting down around the table, and the mother decided to ask the five-year-old son to say the grace, say the prayer. The boy was shy, so he said, I don't know what to say. And the mother smiled and said, just say what Daddy said at breakfast this morning. (laughs) And so the boy said, Oh God, we've got those awful people coming to dinner tonight. (laughs) Can you imagine being in that situation? (laughs) Suddenly how you really feel is exposed. Have you ever been in a situation like that where... What's hidden is made known, and it's very uncomfortable. When you're a sinner, it's not comfortable, is it, to have the lid lifted off the hidden part of your life for people to see or for others to see. Now, if you're not a sinner and you've got nothing to hide, it doesn't matter, right? But we all know that's not our case. One of our greatest fears is to be known. But I want to ask this question, and just think about it today, and um, don't have to give an answer. It's a hard question. What is more scary, to be known, I mean to really be known, or to never be known? What do you think is more scary? To truly be known or to never be known? And of course, we know it's scary to be known. But think about how scary it would be to never be known. I mean, for all eternity, for no one to ever know you, not God, not man, no one. No one really knows who you are for all eternity. I think that would be extremely sad and lonely to never be known. And yet, as sad and lonely as it would be to never be known, I think that for most people, being known is just too immediately painful. And so they'd rather endure that loneliness than face rejection. This incident that we, read, this, uh, that we read, this passage, like so many incidents in the life of Jesus, is about Jesus lifting the lids off of that which is hidden. This, this is about Jesus making known what is unknown. And this isn't surprising that Jesus does this here, that he does it throughout uh, his ministry, because... Jesus is identified as the light of the world, the one who comes into the world to reveal reality, to tell us what reality is, to tell us the truth and the reality of who God is and the truth and reality, and here's where it hurts, of who we are as well. That's what Jesus is doing. John says in his prologue that our response to this light, our response to Jesus And the truth that he brings and the reality that he exposes determines whether we are God's children or not. And Christianity is about embracing the truth that Jesus brings. And what that looks like is confessing your sin and acknowledging the truth of who you are and having faith in who God is and in his graciousness towards you as a sinner. This morning, as we look at this second half of the conversation of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, I'd like us to consider the two things that Jesus makes known in this passage. So first, we'll look at how Jesus makes known who we are. Jesus makes known who we are. And secondly, Jesus makes known who God is. 
There's the two things he's doing in this passage. And I'll just conclude after we look at those two things very briefly with just a a summary of what we've said. So first of all, Jesus makes known who we are. Last week, we looked at the irony and the beauty of this picture, if you remember. Here we have Jesus, the Son of God, who for eternity past had no need of anything, had no want, no pain. And here he is sitting at a well, panting, uncomfortable, asking a sinful woman for water. And at the same time, offering her the living water that will make a person never thirst again. There's irony here, and there's great beauty, as we talked about last week. Last week, I talked about the living water, how this is the gift of salvation. If you take it in the context of the Gospel of John, it is the gift of eternal life, being saved from your sins. And it's more than that. By being saved from your sins through this gracious salvation in Jesus Christ, by him coming, by him dying for you, by him giving you forgiveness and eternal life and righteousness as a free gift, that experience brings you the true knowledge of who God is. That's what God is like, you realize. And so this living water is this salvation and the knowledge of God that comes with that which satisfies the human thirst for righteousness, for safety, for acceptance, for love. All of that is given in this gift through Jesus Christ. It's, the most uns- it's an unspeakable gift, as Paul put it. But we see in verse 15 that the woman still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so in verse 15, after hearing Jesus speak of this living water, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. You can tell by her, by her response, she still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And she probably says this with a bit of a joke. You know, she's trying to keep the conversation casual still. She doesn't want to go too deep here. And so Jesus has to shift gears in order to advance this conversation. In verse 16 through 18... Jesus proceeds to suddenly drop a bombshell on this woman, and he turns a comfortable conversation into an uncomfortable one. He turns up the heat because he lifts the lid on this woman. And he says, I know who you are. You didn't think I know who you are, but I know who you are. Let's see what he says again in verse 16. Go and call your husband and come here. Now, he already knows the situation, So often God, even though he already knows what's going on, will ask us a question or will ask us to do something to see what our response will be. And she answers, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Do I have your attention now? Imagine her shock. I'd like to point out three things about what Jesus is doing here. First of all, Jesus' purpose in saying this to the woman is twofold. Number one, obviously, he wants to get the woman's attention by revealing more of himself. He wants to show her who, more of who he is. And she sees that. When, when, when she sees that he's able to, to 
tell what she's done and who she is, she responds, I perceive you're a prophet. You know, I perceive you're somebody that's not ordinary here. And so that's one purpose Jesus wanted to get at. But if we think that that's all Jesus is doing is just revealing more of himself, hey, I'm more than an ordinary guy. We're missing the point. Jesus could have showed he was more than an ordinary person by saying some other thing, right? Maybe saying a detail of her life that wasn't so sensitive. But he brings this point up in her life. He, he exposes her sinfulness. He exposes her failure. That's got to be a, perhaps the sore spot in her life. And he does it because his purpose is not simply to make known more of himself, but to make known to the woman herself as well. And to say, I know who you are, and I'm calling your attention to who you are. See, the woman doesn't understand her real problem. In verse 15, she says, I would sure love that living water so that I don't have to come here and draw anymore. He says, you have a way bigger problem than just coming to this well and drawing. You need the living water for an entirely different reason. So she doesn't know what her real problem is. The commentator Marcus Dodds writes that Jesus cannot give the water before thirst for it has awakened. The sure method of awakening the thirst is to make her acknowledge herself as a sinful woman. Notice another thing that's happening here in verse 16, 17, 18. The woman tries to hide herself and remain unknown. Have you noticed that? So when Jesus says, go call your husband, right now he's approaching dangerous territory, right? He's approaching the the scary parts of her life. He's approaching the the part of her life that if others know, I'm going to be hated and rejected and they're not going to think well of me, etc. So as as he goes close to that spot, the woman tries to hide and remain unknown. How? By giving a safe answer. I have no husband. We all know those safe answers because we've all spoken such safe answers where you speak a truth, right? It's true. She doesn't have a husband. But you're not exposing the full truth because you don't really want people to know the full truth. And you kind of justify yourself. Oh, I didn't lie, right? So we see that this is a sore spot for this woman. She is trying to hide from Jesus. Her silence is her suppressing truth. It's a very important point. She's suppressing the truth, not by speaking a lie, but by her silence. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, God charges the world and mankind with suppressing the truth. Do you remember that? That's one of the most fundamental charges of from heaven against earth, is that human beings suppress the truth. Now, someone might read that and say, well, where do they do that? I mean, I don't see people doing that. I don't see people burning books left, right, and center. I don't see people speaking lies all the time. Yeah, there's some people that are speaking outright lies, but I mean, the majority of people aren't going around saying falsehoods out of their mouth. So how is it that God charges us with suppressing truth. And I think we learn a very valuable lesson here from the woman at the well, that the suppression of truth is not only 
by speaking falsehood, but by not speaking what is true. And the suppression of truth actually happens even while we may be speaking truths. The world is condemned not only for the lies that it does positively speak, but for its silence as well. Have you ever thought about that? All men are liars, the Bible says. And that's true, not only for us speaking lies positively, but for us being silent about what is true. And so you can live in a world of, quote, truth. The world is full of people who speak truths like, there is a God, right? We should worship God. There is a right and wrong. There is a heaven and hell. We should be concerned about those things. And on and on and on. It's wrong to do that, and it's right to do this, and we should read the Bible, and the Bible is God's word, and blah, blah, blah. And those are all true, right? And we can go on for a long time speaking truths and convince ourselves, I'm not speaking any lies and justify ourselves, when in reality we're suppressing the truth of who God is because we're failing to speak at all. Here, here's the full truth. There is a God, and I have not given him the honor that is due him. That's the full truth, right? The Bible is the word of God, and the Bible testifies that God requires perfect love and perfect righteousness in order for us to enter the kingdom of God, and I have not given that. That's the full truth. And so we suppress the truth as long as we keep silent about who God truly is and who we truly are. The third thing to notice about Jesus' saying here is that Jesus is not exposing this woman in order to condemn her. There's not a hint here. There's not a hint here to, about condemnation. John chapter 3 tells us that the world is already condemned, and Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's not trying to condemn this woman, he's trying to help this woman. He's here to save this woman. And this is the truth about Jesus making known who we are. He declares who we are. He declares the truth of each one of our unrighteousness. I'm unrighteous, brothers and sisters. You're unrighteous, brothers and sisters, in and of yourself, by your works. If you were to add it all up, tally it all up, if God were to judge you based upon your performance and behavior from birth to death, you would be unrighteous, worthy of damnation and death. Yeah, that's a hard thing to hear. You deserve to go to hell. So do I. You're no good. God doesn't think you are fitting for heaven. But God does think you are fitting for hell. That's not pleasant. And yet, that is the truth. And Jesus tells that to us in order to awaken us to that reality so that we will confess the truth and be saved. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't try to awaken us out of our stupor. If Jesus Christ were here right now before you, he would know everything about you. You could not hide from him. And he would be able to tell you personally and apply this to yourself. He would be able to say something to you like he says to this woman and touch the sore spot that part of you that you fear people knowing, that part of you that you know is not right, 
that you try to suppress, Jesus would be able to pinpoint it and speak about it. And he'd look at you in the eyes and he'd, he'd talk to you about it with love in his face. He'd cut deep as a surgeon because he cares for you. And this is the glorious truth of the Bible that God knows who we are. Hiding from him is totally futile. And even though he knows you perfectly, he knows all your secrets, he loves you. And he sent his son into the world to cause a great exchange. Give me all your secret garbage and all your unrighteousness and all your evil that would make you that makes you fit for hell. I will take it. I will bear it. I will deal with it. I will pay the penalty so you don't have to. I know who you are and I love you and I want to save you. That's the glorious message of the Bible. So we learn here in this passage that Jesus makes known who we are. And he does it in love. My second point Jesus makes known who God is. Now, Jesus has made known more of himself to this woman. She realizes he's more than an ordinary man. He's also given her a sense of her sin. He says, I know who you are. You can't hide from me. And this woman, confronted by both of these realities, okay, he knows that I'm no good, and he's no ordinary guy. She then turns the conversation to a question of religion. And I don't believe this is a dodge. I don't believe that the woman is trying to avoid anything. I think that the fact that he's no ordinary guy, he's a prophet, and the fact that she's now under a sense of her sin, she goes to this question of how to be right with God. Where's the place that God has prescribed that we approach him? and are reconciled to him, and worship him. This question was the major issue dividing the Samaritans and the Jews. They were divided over other things, but this was the main issue. And we see in verse 19 and 20 what her question is. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And the mountain she's referring to is the one that both Jesus and her could see with their own eyes, Mount Gerizim, for the well was right by Mount Gerizim. So she's saying, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. And you people, that is the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's asking this question. To understand the question, we need to understand who the Samaritans are and what their conflict is with the Jews. It's an interesting story. In 2 Kings chapter 17, you'll remember that the northern kingdom of Israel, do you remember Old Testament history? I hope you all do, and if you don't, it's time to go read that again. The northern kingdom of Israel, which, which, which consisted of the ten tribes, ten of the twelve tribes, which had divided from Judah, they were eventually conquered by the Assyrians, and their capital was Samaria. The Assyrians deported the Jews, not all of them, but most of them, and resettled the area with foreigners. So they brought in people from 
what would be from modern-day Iraq, and they put, brought these people over and settled them in Samaria and in the northern area in Israel. What's interesting is 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 17 tells us that when these foreigners got there, they you know, worshipped their own gods and they had all their gods that they honored. And God sent a bunch of lions and attacked them for that. Do you remember that? So God punished these people for their idolatry in the land of Israel. And they realized something's wrong with us. This is not natural happenstance. The God of this land is punishing us because we don't know his ways. We don't know his method. We don't know how we're, to, how we're supposed to worship him. And so they called for some Israelite priests to come and teach them the ways of the Lord. And so that's when, at this point, a group of foreigners in Israel started to worship the God of Israel in a semi-biblical way. Because it says in the scriptures, they did continue to worship their other gods as well. Eventually, these foreigners married with remaining Israelites, and about 200 years later, at that point, that people had dropped all the foreign gods, and they were simply worshiping the one God, Jehovah. And yet, they hadn't only dropped the, idol- the other gods of the nations, but they'd also dropped 90% of the Hebrew scriptures. They only adhered to the Torah, the first five books of, of Moses. That's maybe not 90%, but they only adhered to the first five books of Moses. And if you are familiar with that, uh, with the first five books of, Mo- of Moses, nowhere in the first five books of Moses does it say that Jerusalem is the place where God will put his name and where you're to sacrifice. Do you remember that? What it does say at the very end in Deuteronomy is, when you go into the land of Israel and take it, I will tell you where you shall worship me. I shall, I shall tell you where you will build a house for my name. I will tell you where you will do your sacrifices in the place that I have chosen. And so they reject the prophets. They reject Joshua and the histories and all of that stuff. And they say, no, no, it's just what Moses has written And the real place where we're to worship God isn't in Jerusalem at all. It's here in Mount Gerizim. And they had their arguments and their reasons to do that. In 5th century BC, the Samaritans actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim that by Jesus' day was destroyed. The Jews saw them as counterfeits, heretics. They were competitors because they were the ones saying, no, no, we are the ones who, who have the true worship of God. We are the ones who are approaching God in the appropriate and right way. You Samaritans are, you Jews are doing it wrong. And of course the Jews said, no, no, you Samaritans are out to lunch. You're doing it wrong. Jesus' parable, the good Samaritan, says what their relationships were like. When the Samaritan helps the Jew, that's a big surprise. It's interesting that even today, 800, about 800 Samaritans still exist and live in the land of Israel and still believe Gerizim is the place where uh, worship of God should be done and that all of Judaism is wrong and believing it was in Jerusalem. 800 still exist, not many. So this is the big religious question for her, and don't miss this. It's not simply a question of where should the temple be located. 
It's really a question that's deeper than that. What scriptures are we to trust? Do we just trust the first five books of Moses, or are the prophets also inspired? Do we also adhere to everything else? And it's ultimately a question, am I right with God? So it's no, it's no, we shouldn't look at this question as some people do and say, what a stupid question, you know? It's just some dumb, uh, unenlightened question, where should I worship on what mountain? No, this is at the core of religion. This is at the core of, who is God? Has he spoken through the prophets? Am I right with him? Jesus' answer to this woman is famous. There's a famous section here on worship. In verse 21, Jesus tells her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, Jesus is not saying that her question is wrong or that her question is unimportant. We shouldn't read from this, Woman, get over it. It's not a big deal. That's not what he's saying. The question is important and it's not wrong, but what he is saying is the question will soon be obsolete. It will soon be an obsolete question. Not that it's not an important question. It's of chief importance. Which mountain? But it will soon not be relevant because things are going to change. In verse 22... Jesus directly answers the woman's question about which mountain one should approach God during that time. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. And so here Jesus says explicitly, clearly, he answers her question outright, you Samaritans do not know the God that you worship. Your worship of him is in ignorance. It's not that they thought that, right? But he's telling them, that's the truth. You're wrong. And on the other hand, we Jews know the God we worship. We do not worship him in ignorance. Now, someone might raise a question. How does Jesus' statement here reconcile with the fact that the Pharisees and many Jews the Bible tells us, didn't know God. How is it now that Jesus says, we Jews know who we worship? When other verses say, they'll kill you because they don't know God. I think the answer is that Jesus is simply speaking ideally here about Jewish religion at its best. He's thinking of people like Ezra and Nehemiah and in his own day, Simeon and Anna and Nathaniel. He's not thinking of the Pharisees in particular as one part of Israel. The Pharisees, of course, share lots of things in common with those in Israel who were truly knowing God. And the Pharisees were right in what they agreed. Uh, They were right in the things that they agreed, um, over the things they agreed with, with those who did worship God in truth. But Jesus is not talking about only one part of the nation of Israel. I think Jesus here is thinking bigger. He's thinking of the nation as a whole. He's thinking of the nation at its best. And he's saying, we Jews know who we're worshiping. And so Jesus sides with the Jews against the Samaritans on this question. 
and he upholds, brothers and sisters, the location of the temple in Jerusalem at his time, and he upholds, this is, a, this is an amazing thing, he upholds the entire Hebrew Bible. This is a powerful statement of support for the Tanakh, the whole thing. What does Jesus think about the law and the prophets? He professes here to this woman that they're of God. And to depart from them is to enter ignorance. And so we see here a very important lesson for our 21st century um, pluralistic ways and days. Jesus said some people are just wrong. (laughs) True? Jesus says you're wrong. You ask me about the Samaritan Jew question, well, I'll tell you. You Samaritans are wrong. And we Jews are right. Jesus here lets us know that people can be wrong and mass religious movements can be wrong and that there is a right way to think and to worship God. I think we can get overwhelmed, right? We think, well, look at all these different religions, and they're so big. They can't all be, you know, there can't only be one right, right? How can everybody be wrong? And again, it's not that the Samaritans had everything wrong, right? And it's not that this world doesn't speak some truth. But Jesus is saying, don't be deceived by big movements and doctrines and things. Many people are wrong. And it's true today, my friends, many people are wrong. And Jesus says at the end of verse 22, salvation is from the Jews. That doesn't mean that all Jews are right, but it does mean that salvation comes from the Jewish matrix. It's a Jewish thing. Christianity comes from that Jewish matrix. We cannot be saved without the Jewish history, message, and Messiah. At our wedding, I made a comment that was misunderstood by somebody. I said that Christianity is essentially Jewish, and I was thinking of this verse when I said it. This person thought I was corrupting Christianity by saying that. You know, basically saying Christianity is Judaism, Judaism is Christianity, there's no difference No. Judaism is the religion of those Jews who have rejected Jesus, rejected righteousness through faith alone, rejected the scriptures and what the scriptures teach about God and about people. Christianity is the religion of the Jews who have accepted and remained true to their Messiah, to their scriptures, to their God. They're in keeping with Jewish history and the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish message. Judaism and Christianity have much in common. Same historical roots, but they diverge at the critical point. The true knowledge of God and the true knowledge of man. And Judaism is not true to their own scriptures. Christianity remains true to the Jewish scriptures. Christianity is not some new offshoot thing that comes over here. It's just continuing on with the truth of God in the scriptures. I don't know if you've heard of this man, Israel Zali. 
He was the chief rabbi of Rome during the Second World War. And he actually converted to Christianity. Amazing thing that he did that. He, sa- he was asked, why did you give up the synagogue for the church? And by synagogue and church, those are just shorthand for why did you give up you know, th- your Jewish history and past and all of that? Why did you give it all up for the church, this Gentile foreign thing? And he responded, I have not given it up. Christianity is the completion of the synagogue, for the synagogue was a promise, and Christianity is the fulfillment of that promise. Edith Schaefer, the late wife of Francis Schaefer, wrote a book called Christianity is Jewish. And she says in that book, Paul would have been astonished if anyone had told him that Christianity was to be a dividing word between Jew and Gentile. Paul knew Christianity was Jewish and that it was a very great thing that the door had been opened to Gentiles too. And the Bible depicts us Gentiles coming into this beautiful Jewish root and into the promises of Abraham. Salvation is from the Jews. Christianity is not a universal philosophy. It is a revelation that has come throughout a history of God working with this people and inviting people in by the preaching of the gospel. Now look with me at verse 23 and 24. After answering the woman's question as it related to that time, Jesus returns to his point that the question will soon be obsolete, and he proceeds now to lift the lid on God. He proceeds now to reveal God. He tells us about God. And it's a major revelation of who God is. These are famous words. You've all heard them many times, I'm sure. The English expositor G. Campbell Morgan says that the statements here are so profound that sometimes I think we hardly yet grasp their significance. And I think this saying of Jesus is often misunderstood. In verse 23, Jesus says, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now what does he mean? I'd like to make three important observations about this saying. Number one, God seeks worship. And he seeks worshipers. In other words, God does things that you and I don't do or at least shouldn't do. True? The Father seeks those to worship him. Could that be rightly applied to any one of us? You seek those to worship you? No. The Father does things that you and I should not do and do not do. And we see here there's a big difference between God and man. It's okay for God to do this. It's not okay for you to do this because God alone is worthy of worship. He's qualitatively different than us. Worship is the chief end of creation. 
in Romans chapter 1, going back to that, that chapter again, we see that mankind is guilty and condemned because they suppress truth, because they fail to give God worship and to give God honor and to give God the glory that is deserving him. And in the book of Revelation, we see that worship is everywhere, in heaven and for all eternity. It's, a, it's going to be in the consummation. If, I hope you're not surprised by this. But for all of eternity, whatever else we'll be doing, we will be worshiping God. And that's an awesome thing. And you hear it so often, don't you, from people, well, what kind of a God would want worship? They don't know who God is. They don't understand. He's not a man. And any thinking like that just shows you really don't understand who God is and who you are. Or people will say, well, what are we going to do for all eternity? Worship God? Boy, that sounds boring. You don't know God. (laughs) That's not boring for those who know who God is. It's exciting. It's wonderful. And it's true. Earth, unfortunately, is a desert of worship, but heaven is an ocean of worship. And I think we'll be surprised by the contrast. So that's the first point I'd like to draw our attention to. God seeks worship. The second point is there are true and false worshipers. That's a fact. There are true and false worshipers. The Father doesn't merely seek worship. He seeks the true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, which means there are false worshipers. This world, unfortunately, is full of people who worship God falsely. Full of people who think they know who God is, just like this Samaritan woman who's worshiping God, and he says to her, you don't know who you worship. The world is full of people like this. That's not me saying this, it's Jesus saying this. In other words, the world is full of idolatry. For to worship anything other than the true God is to worship an idol. John Calvin wrote wrote this in his Institutes, Man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition. So much so, I think in another place he says, the heart of man is a factory of idols. Man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain, which is what people have done. And I'm sure we're all guilty of that. There are true and false worshipers. And thirdly, any worship that is not in spirit and truth is false worship. So Jesus uses this phrase, in spirit and truth, to qualify or to mark off what true worship is. That's an important thing then to understand, isn't it? Now I'd like this morning to attempt to explain what this phrase means. To worship God is to serve God, to give God praise, thanksgiving, glory, etc. And I don't feel the need to go into it in any depth, what it means to worship God, because I think the act of worship is simple to understand. And we know what that looks like. 
And the reason why I don't feel the need to go into detail explaining the act of worship is because I do not believe Jesus is talking about the act of worship here. But what he is talking about is the sphere or atmosphere within which the act of worship is performed. You worship the Father in spirit and truth. That is, we know what worship is, but is it in spirit and truth? And I think as we try to interpret this, so often as Christians we get distracted with the act of worship. We think, am I, am I worshiping in the right method? Is the act right? But I don't think Jesus is talking about that. When you worship, what's the atmosphere, the sphere, the context in which you are worshiping? Those who worship idols, I think, act in the same way as we do. They sing, they pray, they talk to God, they praise God, they say how amazing God is, they, they can lift their hands, they can dance, they can fall on their face, they can serve him. But one is idolatry and one is not. And I don't think the difference is the act, but rather the object of the worship. Think of the, the, the Hindus who serve and praise and sing and bow down to images of God. They're acting very similarly to maybe how we do at church here with singing. They wouldn't maybe have congregational singing, but the act is similar. But one is idolatry and one is not. And what is the difference? Is it in spirit and in truth? Or don't just think of Hinduism but even false forms of Christianity, which could look identical to what we do here at church. Okay? You could go to some congregation or church that professes to be Christian, but is not. And they will pray, and they will sing, and they'll have congregational singing, and they'll do all the things that we do. And it is false worship, not true worship. Because it's not the act of worship that's different. It's the atmosphere, the context, the sphere, the object that's different. So what then does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? I think truth is self-explanatory. Our worship must be to the true God in the true knowledge of God. So the Samaritans are an example of those who were not worshiping God in spirit and in truth because they did not know the God that they were worshiping. As we gather as Christians on Sunday morning, as true Christians, we are singing songs and praying and lifting up our hands. But brothers and sisters, what makes it not idolatrous is that we know who God is through Jesus Christ. We're praising the God who is, really is. And we're exalting him for who he is. We come in the true knowledge of God. This knowledge Jesus gives us as we've been learning from the Gospel of John. By showing us ourselves and who God is, by showing us we are unrighteous and that God is perfectly righteous and that our works are not acceptable to God. If you come to worship God thinking that your worship of God or your works or your performance throughout the week is what makes you acceptable before God, you are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. 
If you come, on the other hand, to God recognizing, I am all unrighteousness, all of my performance is filthy rags in your eyes, and I come as an acceptable worship before you through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins, who makes me acceptable before you, and I praise you and I thank you for this truth, and I worship you for who you are and what you've done for me. That is worshiping God in truth. And it's acceptable. What does it mean to worship in spirit? This one's a little trickier. I don't believe what Jesus means here is you need to have umph in your worship. (laughs) You know, with spirit, you know, like. (laughs) And not that that's wrong. We should worship him with umph. Of course we should. Be wrong if we didn't. I just don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. Nor do I believe Jesus is talking about sincerity. You need to worship God in sincerity. Nobody disagrees with that. Whether you're Hindu or whether you're a Jew who does not believe in Jesus or a Samaritan who worships on that mountain, you should worship God with sincerity and umph. And I don't think Jesus is simply saying that. But here's what I think Jesus means by worshiping God in spirit and truth. And I believe that this word spirit is connected with a rich theology throughout the Bible that differentiates spirit from flesh, God from man. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. Our worship must be of God in the purity and the power of the new creation, and not of man in the unrighteousness and impotence of the old creation. In other words, to worship God in spirit is the opposite of worshiping God in the flesh. And worshiping God in the flesh would be me in and of myself, my old man, my old creation, seeking to establish my acceptability before God and my righteousness before God, and that is worshiping God in the flesh. Whereas worshiping God in the spirit is worshiping God in the new creation as a new creation. Recognizing that I'm acceptable before God, not through my own efforts and power and what I do, but through Jesus Christ and what he's done for me, which is the work of God and not of man. We either worship God in flesh and lies, or we worship God in spirit and in truth. I think thinking about this idea of the temple may shed more light on this. Because Jews and Samaritans never said you could only praise God at the temple. You know, you could only ever pray or praise or bow or sing or worship God at the temple. That's not what the debate is about. The question is where am I made acceptable to God? Right? Do I go to Jerusalem and do the sacrifices there to make, myself ex- as, to make myself an acceptable worshiper to God? Or do I go to Gerizim and do the sacrifices there to make myself acceptable to God? And Jesus, of course, at his time, he says, you know, you Samaritans are wrong. God actually prescribed that people go through the temple at Jerusalem to make themselves acceptable before God. But, you know, all of that was actually just a shadow of some real thing, which is me. And pretty soon... That's all obsolete. 
I am the way that a person is made an acceptable worship before God. You worship God through me, not through the temple, but through me. So I believe that we're mistaken. And I think this is, this is a, a, a false idea many fall into, that what Jesus is saying here to this woman basically amounts to the abolition of any idea in the Bible of locality or location in religion. Have you ever heard it interpreted that way? That basically Jesus' point here is that locations do not matter anymore to God. Everything is now non-material. That's Jesus' point. It should be non-material. Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore. Israel, the land, doesn't matter anymore. Get rid of the idea of location. And I think this is wrong. What you need to get rid of, though, is the idea that you need to, that what makes you an acceptable worshiper is location. And that you need to realize it is through Christ and Christ alone that we worship God. We are not closer to God or more acceptable to God through a temple or a location, but through Jesus Christ. However, this verse doesn't abolish the importance of the physical world or the importance of biblical locations like Jerusalem. In verse 24, uh, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus here is making known who God is. This is not a mere statement that God is non-material. He's not just saying, God is not material, you know, like all the material things in this world. He's not that. Well, she knew that. The Jews knew that. But I think what Jesus is saying here is what D.A. Carson comments in his commentary. God is divine as opposed to human. In other words, God is other. God is holy. God is purity. God is not tainted by any darkness at all. God is the opposite of fallen creation. And therefore, the only acceptable worship is based upon his own work and not ours. Or to put this in another way, to paraphrase Jesus, it takes God to worship God. You want to acceptably worship God? It takes God to do that. Because he is spirit, not flesh. And no flesh can be acceptable before him. You're going to have to worship in spirit, and that's going to have to be something that he does and something that he provides. He's utterly holy above creation, and creation cannot acceptably worship God but through Christ. I believe this is what Jesus is saying. And the glorious Christian message, brothers and sisters, is that God has provided this way for us in his Son. The old creation is not acceptable, but in his love he came for us and he made us new creations in Christ. I think this was all over the woman's head as it is over people's heads today and maybe over many of us here. In verse 25 she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he who is called Christ When that one comes, he will declare to us all things. This is such a wonderful statement. 
He will make known all things to us when he comes. So she doesn't think he's the Messiah. She thinks he's a prophet or something. But in her understanding, and it was a true understanding, based upon the five books of Moses, the Messiah is coming, and he is going to teach us, reveal, expose, and make known everything that we need to know. Amen? Isn't that what Moses said? A prophet's going to come, one like me, and you need to listen to what he says. If you don't listen to what he says, you'll be cut off from among the people. So in the Samaritan mind, the coming of the Messiah was, was really about Jesus, or the Messiah coming and teaching and making known and revealing who God is and who we are. So that's what she's saying. All this stuff, Messiah is going to explain it. It's interesting that the Jews have de-emphasized the role of Messiah as teacher, at least for themselves. They think, yeah, Messiah will come and be a teacher of the Gentiles, but for us, he's going to come and just be our deliverer. And they didn't realize that, no, no. Yes, he comes as a teacher, and you need to learn too, because your worship of God is also false if you think that. You need to learn who you are. You're unrighteous and unacceptable to God, and you need to learn who God is and what his standards are, and that even though he knows you, and even though you're unacceptable, he loves you, and he's made a way for you to approach him by grace through faith. And Jesus says, I am he. I am he. In fact, I'm telling you right now who you are and who God is. I'm telling you right now that God requires spiritual worship, and he seeks it. He provides it. So in summary this morning, I close. This wonderful story shows us that Jesus is the Messiah who makes known all things. He makes known who we are, unrighteous sinners who are loved by God, and he makes known who God is. And he makes known to us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us through him. Is it better to be known or unknown? (coughs) With God, it's better to be known. We don't really have a choice, actually. We are known. But we do have a choice how we will respond to this light. So if you're not a Christian, we as a, we as a church encourage you to respond to the light of Jesus Christ. And he speaks into your life and says, you're a sinner, you're not acceptable. All of your good deeds don't count. Don't push him away. But believe in the grace of God. And if you are a Christian, let's just rejoice together that God knows who we are perfectly and he loves us and he provided for us salvation in his son. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we rejoice in your son that he came into the world to make known the truth. And we thank you that you have provided for us that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Father, that we would be reminded of this every day and that we would worship you and remember why it is that we can do that. We love you, Lord. 
you are amazing. And we are not amazing. You are good. And we thank you for inviting us into your life. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.